Good morning. Yes, what a joy it is to be with you all again in one year. So that's a that's an encouraging thing for me, and I pray it's an encouraging time for you too. Um, yeah, joy to be with you all, um, and a, a joy to get to open up God's Word. Um, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 4, and please let me know you have arrived safely at the def- destination with an amen. That's when you find a passage in the scripture. When you get to Psalm 4, just amen. Let's me know you're there. Amen. Okay. Me and him are there. Are there any others? Let the amen sound from the people again. Everyone there? All right. There it is. Okay. Uh, Let me go ahead and uh, ask God for his help. Please join me in a time of prayer. Oh, dear Lord, uh, we thank you for what you've done for us. We're eager to consider it, to reflect on it, to proclaim it, to recount it, your, your goodness displayed in sending your son Christ that we might have a full salvation. We thank you that we stand today, those of us who believe, reconciled to you, on good terms with you, having peace with you. And this is all because of what you've done. We pray, Lord, you would humble us with this, that you would rejoice us with this, cheer us with this, stabilize us with this. We pray, Lord, as we look at your word, that you would bless us, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Oh, Lord, your word is truth. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 What will be in Psalm 4, the title for the message this morning is The Groans and Graces of the People of God, uh, which seems to be an ever-appropriate theme for God's people. Christmas does not change the troubles. Uh, Groans and grace are two guarantees for every saint. We all live lives filled with griefs, and yet in the Lord, we live lives more fully filled with grace. Now, the Christian can testify that even where sin abounds, God's grace much more abounds. And in Psalm 4, David is wrestling with groans, but he's being comforted by grace. And we want to look to him so that we might learn healthy habits for us as we go through hardship and difficult circumstances. Because again, it's what's guaranteed. You remember in Matthew chapter six, when Jesus called his people to not be anxious about anything, but to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he wanted them to know that that does not mean you have a pain-free or trouble-free life. Remember, he, he concluded that section by saying, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So while he gives us sufficient grace for each trouble we encounter, we know sufficient for each day will be the trouble, but his grace is sufficient for all. I'm going to go ahead and read the psalm, and then we will jump right in. Please do hear the word of the Lord. This is, in fact, the best part of the sermon. Oh, and just a quick note, verse 2 and verse 4, there's those two little phrases at the end. It's Selah. Selah. 
people don't really know exactly what that means. Often they assume it's a musical term, uh, some kind of liturgical cue. Um, and so just know that those are there. I'm not skipping parts of God's word. Um, we're just interpreting them as they're perhaps musical terms. And since I'm not singing this for you, I will just read it for you. But just know that they're there. Uh, Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, the, in, in Psalm 4, David is clearly identified as the author. Uh, the Psalms inscription was addressed to the choir master. So even though it is the words of David, it's not only a song for David, right? The psalmist didn't write this for his private enjoyment and reflection, but for our corporate instruction and edification, we learn from the inscription that this song is intended to be a song that the saints would sing and that all the saints would sing and that the saints might sing together. It is anticipated that the people of God be able to relate with the groanings and also the comfort by God's grace. Uh, one commentator wrote, addressing the psalm to one of the leaders of public worship shows that it was for the whole church and not for one man. It is public property. And as we consider this psalm, we can easily see why God would have his people to sing this. Uh, the content of the song describes our common experiences as sojourners and as pilgrims. This psalm resonates with our regular groaning as strangers in the land that we're in, with our longing to be home where all is made well and all is made new. And also this psalm sings of our regular refreshment we experience of the grace of God. And so I'm going to break this up in two sections. First, we'll have considering the groans, and then we're going to consider the graces. So we'll consider the groans of God's people and then the graces for God's people. And so first we'll look at the groans. Now, so if you look there in verse 2, uh, it gives us some indication for the cause of the psalmist calling out, right? It says, oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies with that Selah? So David had received glory in the Lord. And from the Lord. Uh, in Psalm 3, which comes right before this, uh, he says, his glory is the Lord himself. You might remember, right? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. 
But even under that, David received glory from the Lord. So the Lord was his glory, but he also received glory from the Lord. The Lord crowned David with glory and honor. He made him to be king of his people Israel. He had given him the honor of a great name, like the name of the great ones in the earth, according to 2 Samuel 7. And he gave him the honor of his house and his kingdom being made sure forever. So David was extravagantly honored in the Lord and from the Lord, but we find that even though he was greatly honored by the Lord, that didn't prevent him from being greatly despised by men. Oh men, he says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? A part of what interrupts our experience of what God says is true of us is often what we bump into from other people. The discouraging, the despising, the disregard, the dishonor. Uh, this is one reason Peter had to write to those elect exiles to remind them of how honored they actually were in the Lord because societally it just didn't feel that way. I know you've experienced this. We've been a Christian longer than six days. You've experienced how dishonored the Christian way is in the world. We're called all manner of vile names. We're accused of doing vile things. We're even called vile beings, all for loving righteousness. David understands that there are two groups of people, and he references there in verse 2 and verse 3. I wonder if you see them. There are the men of the world in verse 2, and then there are the godly ones, the godly ones who belong to the Lord in verse 3. And this plea to God that David is making is provoked because the men of the world are dishonoring the people of God. The, the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman has went on since the fall. Now, this is why Christians are called to expect to be out of place in the world. And we don't really want to do that. And we do everything we can to not be that. We get more stuff to make this as heavenly as we can. Uh, we try to get relationships to help it feel as heavenly as we can. We try to take care and manage our bodies and our resources to make it feel as heavenly as we can. But Jesus has already told us this is all going down. Right? Christian life does not make sense before the resurrection. Uh, we await a city that's to come whose designer and builder is God. We're looking for the land where there's no sickness, no mourning, no death. We're waiting for that time and that place when the Lord Jesus makes all things new. And until that happens, we are to expect being out of place. We're to anticipate being maligned, dishonored, and mistreated for righteousness sake, all because we bear the name of God. Christ laid this down as an essential for his disciples to understand. Remember, he told them on his way out, as he was prepping them to experience a world full of trouble, he told them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that wasn't just for the apostles, but for everyone who would seek to live a life for Christ. Remember, Paul wrote to Timothy the same sentiment. 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be 
persecuted. Uh, we're reminded that in every age of history, pleasing God has been deeply unpopular. And oftentimes, even for those after God's own heart, being dishonored can be really discouraging. And here David is feeling the weight of that disregard. You know what they say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. In fact, words often hurt more than the sticks and stones do. Lies. This is the devil's main weaponry, is lies. They're words that lie. Sometimes those things pierce us deeply, they discourage us deeply, they disorient us much, they bring us down and low. Though we're honored in the Lord, our experience seems to call that into question, and so we need to have a habit of bringing ourselves some sobriety in the spirit, which happens by acknowledging what grieves us and then appealing to the Lord's grace to help us. And this is exactly what we see David doing here. Again, we're not told the specific occurrence of what provoked this song, but we know David's life. It doesn't take long. We don't need a think tank to come up with reasons why David might be singing this on any given day. All right, we, we, we could imagine him arriving here by any number of scenarios is his life, and if not, the accumulative weight of the many acts of evil against him. So whether this plea to God is inspired by the betrayal of Saul, who was jealous of David's success and victories and sought to kill him, or Shimei cursing David instead of supporting him, or Absalom, his son, who sought to steal the kingdom from his father David, or countless others who set themselves against the servant of God, David was among the lineage of the faithful of whom the Lord loves, and yet the world dishonored. Uh, the ungodly do not and cannot rightly view the people of God while they wrongly view the Lord. Even in this text, we're given the reason for these men's corrupt dealings with David, and we find that it's actually a matter of their soul, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and we can assess from the acts and the deeds that men do from where their heart actually is. That's why in verse 2 it says, How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? It's because they're actually corrupt internally that they are corrupt in expression. So we see that they're sitting among the scoffers because they're those who do not seek the Lord. They have a twisted heart and therefore have twisted desires. Rather than seek the Lord and be in the good company of his servants, they seek their own vain glory and they're compelled by lies. And Jesus went out of his way to prepare his people for this. In the world, but not of it. Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Paul says we are as sheep being given to the slaughter all the day long. And God's given us help so that we can maneuver through a broken world still as joyful, sturdy saints. But here David is looking at the lies and the vanity of those who oppose him, and it's grieving him sincerely. I wonder if you're familiar with Ancestry.com. Well, you can spit in a little vial and mail it in, and then they can clone you later. Uh, um, no, 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 just serious. No, you mail it in, and uh, they're able to take that little bit, and they trace back where you're from. 
With just a little sample of your DNA, you can identify your origin. Similarly here, David's holding up a sample of the DNA of the ungodly. They despise him, the servant of the Lord, and they love vanity and lies. And this is to help us understand where that's coming from and who the, those who oppose him are of. Uh, the Lord Jesus helped us to trace such men back to their ancestry, right? In their pursuits, they evidence their pedigree and their parentage. Uh, you remember in John chapter 8, Jesus said, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here, David's being oppressed by the seeds of the devil, the sons of disobedient who follow him just like the rest of the world does. And we know that because there's a vain glory, there's a pride, there's a contentedness and a satisfaction with lies. They suppress the truth in exchange for a lie. And that's because they are the enemies of God. What we long for says much about who we are of. And this is why we tell people who do not know the Lord that it's actually very concerning that they don't desire to love the Lord. Even if their marriage seems clear and their mind seems clear and they're not getting involved in anything we would deem as trouble, if the heart is not seeking after the Lord, the heart is not seeking after the truth, well, that's actually evidence that it's bent on being devoted to evil. Uh, one commentator wrote, he says, those that are vain persons delight in vain things. The wicked delight in vanity, right? Those are the things God accounts as nothing, right? The ungodly seeks after lies. The ungodly, however, excuse me, the godly, however, they seek after the Lord. They seek after his truth. They seek first his kingdom and his, and his righteousness, so where the wicked delights in their sin, we see the godly delights in their God. And the ungodly ones, those vain and lying ones, are seeking to shame the people of God. They're seeking to shame David, and it feels shameful. Right? Those are what the devil uses to bring shame to us, pride and lies. It's the shame trap. And with those weapons, he's been building prisons of shame from the beginning. And all the servants of the Lord encounter the pride and lies that seek to bring shame, right? Though we are the excellent ones in God's eyes, we are poorly esteemed in the world. Though the world is not worthy of the faithful saints, the world doesn't care about them at all. Those who are corrupted in concern with God will be corrupted and hold in contempt all of his people. This happened to David, and we need no greater proof that this will happen to all of God's people than when we consider how it happened to Jesus, right? More sad and shocking than dishonoring David, the king of Israel, is the dishonoring of the greater David, right? The King Jesus. <laughs> For Christ did not simply receive glory in the Lord and from the Lord, but he is the glory of the Lord. He is not a mere recipient of glory like David, but Jesus Christ is the very radiance of the glory of God himself. He does not merely possess some honor, but every perfect 
being in glory strongly affirms and proclaim that to him actually belongs all glory forever and ever. And yet the most glorious king, the most glorious one was despised and rejected by men. They esteemed him not. That's the big shocker of the advent that when Jesus showed up, the whole world did not fall on their knees. I can't sing that note, but that would have been completely appropriate. And we see that because when he was born, he was not flooded with worshipers. He was sought after to be put to death. The angels, though, show up to sing about his glory. They cast word and the shepherds show up. The, the wise men who are of Israel, they're actually the Gentiles. They believe the word of the Lord and they come and honor him. But widely and largely, the Lord Jesus was totally rejected. This is why in John's gospel, it begins that this word made flesh who is the glory of God, who is God himself. When he showed up, the shocker is that he was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Never has honor been turned to shame more unjustly than in the case of the Lord Jesus. Uh, they call his gospel of peace a blasphemy. Though he came to bring eternal life, they sought to kill him. In return for his blessings, they hurl at him curses. They prefer Barabbas, a criminal, to be given them rather than worship the king of glory who's come from heaven to bless them. They call the son of God Beelzebub, that is the son of the devil. Surely, as Hebrew says, he endured from sinners great hostility. But we're given a secret even for the Lord Jesus that there was joy that was set before him that caused him to despise the shame, to not regard it, to not count it as substantive or significant at all. That caused him to endure the cross, endure in obedience, even obedience that led to his death. It was joy before him. It was knowing who his father was, knowing what his father was doing, and knowing the outcome that his father had planned would be executed. This is what David needs to tap into. This is what we need to tap into when we're disoriented by the shame, when we're disoriented by the dishonor and the disrepute. We need to have the joy of the Lord put before us. Right? Those who love vanity and lies cannot love humility and truth. A crooked heart cannot have affection for the straight way of the Lord. And that's how men are. So when David says, oh, men, we should not be surprised that the next words after it talk about sinful corruption. Where man is the focus, the godly will continue to groan. Where man is the focus, focus righteousness will continue to be disregarded. Godliness will continue to be dishonored. The saints will be despised for their faithfulness. Righteousness will seem strange and be mocked. But thankfully for saints, we know someone greater than men. This psalm is not primarily an appeal to men, but to God. Right? With men, there's endless causes for groaning, but with God, we have a world of grace. And that brings us to the, the, the second half. How do we process a, a world riddled with troubles and, and filled with people who dishonor the Lord? How are we to operate in a way that is compelling and beautiful and attractive to the gospel of grace? Well, we find that there's graces for the people of God in their groaning. So let's look at the second part, which is the, the graces of the people of God in their groaning. And there's five of them I want to consider. 
Five graces the Lord lets us to do. That's five grace-filled activities, five grace-caused activities uh, that help us in our growing, right? The first grace I want us to consider is prayer. Grace number one is pray. Again, we're not given a setting for the psalm. Some think it's a continuation of Psalm 3 because of the similar theme and its placement in the songbook. But again, that's conjecture. Verse 2, there clearly are wicked men who are despising David, who are provoking him to agitation, but we're not told who. However, in verse 1, it says, but you have given me relief when I was in distress. So David, feeling distress, has hurried to the throne room because he had previously experienced help from the Lord. Oh, where do you go when you're distressed? Where do you go when you're dishonored or you're disregarded? For David, he went back to the place of help. So whether this need is inspired by Saul seeking him or Absalom seeking him or another problem that entangled him, David here is in need again, and he knows that no matter his troubles, he knows where all his help comes from. His help comes from the Lord. Help for salvation, help for dishonor. He says as the old song went, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Uh, David responded to his groans by going to God in prayer. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Right, though man is have, applying one narrative to David, David is quick to recount what the reality is for him in the Lord. God is his righteousness. God is the God of his righteousness, and God is able to help him. He says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer, which is why we call this a grace. We're not deserving that God should listen to us. We have sinned and we have disqualified the listening, us, we have disqualified any entitlement to being heard by God or being received by God. In and of ourselves, he should not listen to us. But he does. And the reason he does is because he is gracious. He has saved us from our sin. He has given us a mediator between us and him, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for us. And in him, he has opened up heaven and he has bound the listening ear of God to us forever. Oh, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Right, he's coming boldly. He's appealing completely for the grace of God. Grace has brought us safe this far. Grace will lead us home through many dangers, toils, and snares. We have already come. How? It's all by grace. John Noon got it. John Noon, how? How? Grace. But John Noon, you said, mm, grace. But John, where are you? Grace. And his past experience has taught him that God is eager to help him. And so here we find David in distress, feeling discouraged, but with confidence, drawing near to the throne of grace, that he may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We find that even when David's honor is not upheld among people, it is securely held up by the Lord. The people may not want to listen to David. God, almighty God, the Lord does. Though he may not always have a welcomed, warm 
entrance from other people. They might be warmly received by sinners. He will always, forever and perpetually, be warmly received by his God. Right? We're not of the world. We're people of the Lord. We're his chosen possession, his branches, his temple, his dwelling. We're, we're not only associated with the Lord of glory. We're made to be members of his body. And he has been pleased to put his name on us and his spirit in us. And nothing reminds us of our privileged position like actually participating in prayer. If you're ever discouraged that someone's not listening to you, parents, <laughs> be encouraged that God listens to you. If you ever feel like you're left out of a particular social group, no one wants to spend time with you, God has sent his son so that you can draw near to him always. Oh, we're loved, we're cared for, we are being attended to. And prayer reminds us of the reality of things. That we're royalty, that we're a kingdom of priests. And therefore we have freedom and encouragement to confidently, boldly come into the throne of grace of God. We get to ask according to our need, and we're reminded the Lord, the God of our righteousness, will help us. He hears us every time we call. Oh, dear friend, when you are burdened by groans, go to him in prayer. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Grace number two we see here for the people of God in their groaning is being still. So grace number one is to pray. Grace number two is to be still. Look at verse four. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. It is easy to have cause for anger in a fallen world. Many things are not right and it is appropriate to be deeply bothered at times. This text, again, is quoted in Ephesians 4, right? Be angry and do not sin. This reality that there's good cause to be angry. There is endless reasons that will provoke us to anger from David to the time of the church, even to now, is a true state. We are in a fallen world where things are not rightly structured under the Lord, where we are not fully and rightly situated and living in compliance with the Lord. So there's all kinds of reasons to be angry. So as David is suffering the reproach of many around him, and as his honor is being twisted to shame, and as he being lied on and lied to, it is quite understandable that King David is angry. But notice the wise counsel he gives to the people of God. Be angry, but do not sin. Oh, how much more peace would a church enjoy during election times if saints were more eager to be angry and do not sin. And to help us not go from godly anger into sin, he calls us actually into silence. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent, he says. We're reminded here that keeping our mouth closed can prevent much sin. Where words are many, sin is not far off. Not just being slow to speak, but here he's saying even choosing not to speak. And honestly, I think this is just something we value very little. Uh, oftentimes, uh, 
when we think we're righteously angry, we, we think, therefore, it must be communicated. That it is our godly obligation that righteousness requires us to, from our holy anger and godly zeal, which for us is always godly and always righteous, to express what has enraged us in the Lord. David, though, who too was a man after God's own heart, who too tasted, saw that the Lord was good and knew the salvation of the Lord was sweet, was very mindful of his own foolishness and proclivity to sin. I think our smartphones rob us in many ways of having activities like this, moments where when on our beds, we understand our day to conclude with another time of worship, which is being still and considering our ways before the Lord, pondering, on our, pondering in our own hearts on our beds. It's not out loud. People don't need to know what you're thinking about, but pondering in our hearts on our own beds quietly. Right, oftentimes it's much easier for us to watch something on a screen and to fall asleep doing that than to think on our beds. I can't tell you how many times I woke up on my phone because I was looking at my phone as I was going to bed. And I think we suffer for it. I think we're less peaceful, less godly than we could be, and we're certainly more angry. Because one of the things that would happen if before we expressed anger, we considered our anger, is we would be reminded of the many reasons we have not to express it. If we were to consider, as we rightly perceive injustice and wrongness and sin and error, the breaking of God's law that abounds us and the anger that's welling up in us, if we were to consider the wrath and the anger of God and the fear of him, and as much sin as we see out in the world, it does not measure to the sin we know of to be true in our own lives, true in our own hearts, true in our own minds, true in our own mouths and in our own deeds. As we consider expressing anger, we must consider how God has acted deliberately not to express his to us. As we consider the, the righteousness of anger, we consider how God has made a way of escape for us so that we would not be consumed by his wrath, that he has turned his anger from us in his kindness, that though we deserve his wrath, though we deserve his hell because of our wickedness, because we saw after lies, because of our vanity and our own pride, we remember how merciful God has been to us. Certainly that subdues our cause to express anger. Uh, remember, this is what Jesus was, was adamant that his people understood, that he does not delight in expressing anger. He desires mercy. Now, uh, you remember Peter, they were talking about uh, church discipline. And he said, your brother sins, you go to him and tell him his fault. And, and then you get to win your brother. You don't want to express your anger. The goal is to win your brother. And Peter's like, well, how often do we got to do that? And he says a number he thinks is big, seven times. Jesus says a number that's more big than his big number, not to say just count higher, but to say stop counting. And he tells him this parable of a merciful king. 
says, man, you got a dad. There's this guy who had a dad. It was a crazy big dad. Couldn't pay the crazy big dad. The Lord forgave the crazy big dad. The king forgave. Oh, I jumped to the punchline. The king forgave the crazy big dad. Right? The man went away free. Though he deserved to be in prison, he deserved to be harshly treated, he deserved to be locked up, he had a debt he actually owed, he could not pay. And the justice of the law would have been rightly applied to him. But the king had mercy on him. So he showed him compassion. And then the guy walks away. He remembers the other guy who owes him $1,000. A much, much, much smaller amount. Still a debt, but a much smaller amount. And he gets mad at the guy. Says, you're going to pay what you owe. And when Jesus says the king found out about this, he was mad. Right? The king was righteously mad. And in that righteous anger, dealt with the man severely. And we learn that God does not love an unmerciful servant. Mercy is to mark the people of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And as Christians, the one thing we want to be marked for is not expressing righteous anger. We want to be marked by expressing the mercy of Christ. We leave the righteous anger to be expressed by God on the last day, but it's genuinely our eager desire for all that they never have to taste it. And the way we get there in that moment when our feelings are inflamed is by calming ourselves, quieting ourselves, shutting up and thinking about what God has done for us in Christ. And as that cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you will find that anger feels less justified to be expressed. Which is why the appeal for anger in the New Testament church is always put it away. Not put it on someone. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene speech from out of your mouth, not lying to one another. So you're being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. Now we must put these things away. And David says one way to serve us in doing that is to quietly consider before the Lord. And then we remember even our enemies that have so discouraged us, so disregarded us, so dishonored us, they have a much bigger problem coming in the Lord. And our great desire is not for them to experience the exquisiteness of his judgment. We want to show compassion in hopes that they will know like us the mercy God shows to his enemies. Uh, George Swinock, a pastor in the 1600s, he writes of here, when you have none to speak with, talk to yourselves. Ask yourselves for what end you were made, what life you have led, what times you have lost, what love you have abused, what wrath you have deserved. Call yourself to a reckoning. How have you improved upon your talents? How true or false have, have you been to your stewardship? What provision have you laid up for an hour of death? And what preparation have you made for a day of account? Upon your beds, he says, secrecy is the best opportunity for this duty. The silent night is a good time for this speech when we have no outward objects to disturb us. And what he's calling for there and being quiet and on our beds, he's saying, the, that's the plank and the speck. Examine your eyes before the Lord as you're angry. Then you will find that the plank you thought was in your enemy eye is much smaller and the speck you thought in your eye is much bigger. Using our evening at times to not talk 
but to ponder in our hearts and be still before the Lord. It's a grace to help us know peace in our groanings and to quiet ourselves before the Lord, to think on it, to think about him in our own hearts, to examine ourselves and to make sure we are entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. And that we faithfully put anger away, knowing it does not produce the righteousness God requires. A grace number three we see from here is obedience. So we have pray, we have be still. Grace number three is obey. Look at verse five. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And certainly those two things go hand in hand. As we remind ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ, we remind ourselves that we are responsible for us. We are responsible that we are walking in obedience before the Lord. Those who walk in disobedience before the Lord will give an account to him for themselves. We are responsible for us. And here he says, offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. When we are most uncomfortable is the most meaningful time to obey. That is when our worship is most costly, when it's hardest for us to do it. And in our distress and in our troubles, we show we trust the Lord, not only through our earnest prayers, but also in our obedient practices. It as well has a different weight to it in suffering. When it's your birthday and you got the car you wanted, you're saying, Christ has regarded, right? It's easy to feel regarded of the Lord when you feel overwhelmed with bounty. But how about when you're surrounded with those who hate you? When you're engaged in conflict, not because you've been foolish in how you live, but because people hate the God that you serve. When you're opposed, when you're mistreated, when you're maligned. Oh, there's a different weight to that kind of worship. So too with our obedience. Being kind to people when you're having a good day doesn't say anything about your commitment to the Lord. Remember, Jesus says it's the love for enemy that shows we've been perfected in the love of God. He says even unbelievers greet their friends. Oh, the mark of Christians is how they bless their enemies, how they love those who persecute them, how they seek to bless them that do them wrong. And that perspective can only be owned and steered and held onto if we are committing ourselves to rightly considering the cross of Christ. It's interesting that at the time of Jesus' departure from his disciples, to help their heart to not be troubled, among the many words of exhortation he gave for their comfort, one of them is, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So Jesus goes away. He says, love me. Stay with me. Remain close to me. And what I mean by that is obey me. Often when we're upset, we can think we are excused from being held accountable. But this is nowhere in the Bible. Just because we are upset doesn't mean we can be ungodly. Again, as James instructs us, as I mentioned earlier, anger does not produce the righteousness God requires. God is looking for peacemakers, those who show themselves to be the sons of God. God looking for those who are adorned in the humility and meekness and patience and forbearance, those who are eager to forgive as they've been forgiven in Christ, those who are ruled in their hearts by the peace of Christ. Even here, the psalm 
Uh, though David is worn down by distress and dishonor, he's actually singing a song of devotion, and he's calling the saints to keep obeying. Now, what kind of song would you write? When you got a series of emails calling your question into character, or when your family is sending the text message around your back about how unbelievably archaic and bigoted you are, what kind of song would you be singing? Oh, here he's saying, let us go to God in prayer. Let us consider God on our beds. Let us obey the Lord faithfully. Let's be these kinds of believers who trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in every way acknowledging him as the Lord of our life, which is most visible, most seen, and perhaps even from our own faith needs to be most emphasized when we are being the most discouraged. That's when it's the most costly. Grace number four we see here is rejoice. So we have pray, we have be still, we have obey, and look, we have rejoice. Verse 6, apparently many were asking, right? There's many who say, who will show us some good? Right? It seems so clouded with lack of being able to see the goodness of God that some were asking, who will even show us some good? Uh, this might have been the mocking, some will say, who will show some good. It's kind of like when Jesus was on the cross, and they're like, oh, save yourself. If you can save yourself, then you can save us. It, it might be that mocking ask. It might be a sincere ask. But there's many who's asking, who will show us some good? As we consider that, no matter how wrong people are treating us, we have to be overwhelmingly encouraged by how good God has been to us. Much like they asked Christ to prove himself and to show a sign, even though they had already, he had already showed them his glory, the world of men looked for God to do more good for them. It's always more good for them. But they reject the most substantial good that he offers. I wonder if you ever heard somebody say something like, well, if God would just do this, then I would believe him. Or perhaps you maybe heard a Christian mistakenly say, referencing some blessing they have obtained, saying, oh, I know God's real. Because when my, you know, when my, my grandma was sick, we prayed and he healed her and I know he's real. And while that is encouraging to hear, that is not the proof of his goodness. That is not the proof of his love. That is not the proof of his existence. For true goodness is not in acquiring more stuff or a better situation or an easier life or God doing that one thing for you that you want him to do. True goodness is bound up in knowing the Lord himself. This is why David prays that God would make himself known. There's many who say, show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Right? That God would grant men to taste and see that he is good. Oh, he's good, and he's good to save. He hasn't left us in our sin, but has come to save us from his wrath. Jesus Christ came to help us out of hell by suffering in our place on the cross, by rising from the dead in his resurrection. And he did this to cover the deserved shame we actually had and would have. He came to cover that with his glory, to satisfy our souls with himself, and to bring us to an eternal place of safety forever. Oh, if there's any in here asking, well, I wish God would show me some good. 
You're discouraged by others. You might be discouraged by circumstance, and you just want God to show you that he's for you, show that he's good. The answer is not look to stuff, but look to, look to Christ. It's to believe in the gospel again. It's to remember the gospel again. It's to proclaim the gospel again and to rejoice in the gospel again. Come and live in the marvelous light of the Lord. And as you recount it, you'll find you've received much good from the Lord. But though we were trapped in the darkness of our sin and wickedness, much like these wicked men who were opposing David, that used to be us. However, in the gospel, God has lifted up his face to shine upon us. Oh, the ironic blessing, right? Oh, may the Lord lift up his face to shine, lift his countenance to shine upon you. May the Lord show you peace and lift up his countenance to go before you. Don't remember all the words. But the ironic blessing is repeated multiple times in the text has been accomplished. Like it happened. What they were asking for actually happened in Jesus. He lifted up his countenance upon us. He has been gracious to us. He has given us peace in himself. From the death of Christ on the cross in our place for our sin and from his resurrection from the grave, we see the beaming light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, lift up your face upon us, Lord. He says, I have. Look at my son and listen to him. Oh, for anyone looking for God to show them some good, we say that he already has. Oh, look to the cross. Believe in the gospel. Taste and see that he's good. And has done for us what we don't deserve. And for all who do, who turn from their sin, who trust in Jesus, they're granted eternal life, unending peace, and abundant, abiding joy. This is why I think David had this song when the saints were suffering, because as we sing, we counsel ourselves into a right posture, a right focus. We remember. Remember 2 Peter? He talks about those who have become, become partakers of the divine nature, who supplement the faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control, self-fashion, brotherly love, affection, boom. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, right, in the knowledge of Christ. He said, but for whoever has, like whoever's drifted from these, whoever's diminished, and he says, he's, he's forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins, there's a direct connection with ungodliness and discouragement in a saint's life and their recollection that they've been cleansed from their former sins. David's talking about the face of the Lord is the solution. When the voice of man is discouraging, it's the face of the Lord that's the solution. When the, when the dishonor of man is cooling, it's the face of the Lord that warms us. And look what he says in verse 7. And he's hooked me up. My translation, verse 7. Speaking of the Lord, he says, you have put more joy in me. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Who's the they? Their parties, their world, whatever they can get. I got more joy than them. How? Because I have him. I got him. He's mine. 
Because verse 3, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself because I belong to him and he is mine. Oh, many think they need to eat more to have joy. Many think they need to drink more to have joy or that they need to feed their hunger for pleasure in order to have joy. But King David says, God gives me more joy than all the grocery stores and all the wineries, all the liquor stores combined. By his powerful hand, he places and plants forever in the heart of his people his presence. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And his right hand are pleasures forevermore, right? It's the joy of our salvation. It's the joy and peace in believing his word. It's the joy of the Lord. The Lord gives us holy, divine joy that nothing in the world can damage. There's a hymn, My God, My Father, Blissful Name. And he talks about how the inward peace God gives to his people cannot be wounded by any of the assaults of his enemies. Now, regardless of what troubles us in the world, Jesus says we have joy, and not any kind of joy, but his joy. And grace number five is rest. So we have pray, we have be still, we have obey, we have rejoice, and we have rest. Look at verse eight. He says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I just love the progression. You can hear the angst in the first appeal, and it ends with the calming Zs of a sleeping soul. I think it's quite possible that this psalm was written because of a sleepless night David had because of his troubles. Sleep is referenced twice in the psalm. Earlier in verse 4, he references pondering on your beds. And the psalm here concludes with a peaceful sleep as a gift from the Lord. So perhaps he was tossing and turning as we can all do in his bed at night, burdened with the weight of fallenness around him. But while looking around us may tempt us to be restless, we see that looking to the Lord brings peace. You keep him in perfect peace, Isaiah said, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Oh, friends, there's only one source of true safety, and that is the Lord. He's a shield and a fortress for his people. And he causes us to dwell in safety. The safety doesn't mean there will never be any harm. Not at all. David's life was super harmed. No, no, God's people suffer much harm from wicked men, right? The Lord Jesus himself was killed by the hands of lawless men. And in fact, it happened at night. But the safety in view here is the safety of the will of, of, the, will of the Lord. That nothing can happen to you unless the Lord wills it, unless our shepherd has ordained it for good purpose. And if he's willed for it to be, it will be, and it will be used for the good of his saints, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And therefore, that's how we cannot fret at all times, because we know the Lord is leading us wisely through it all. I mean, this is how you can face even the crucifixion and still have peace. This is what we see in the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is it, if it's possible, let this cup pass, but your will is good for me. I trust your will entirely, not my will but yours. How do you look through death and still have joy set before you? Well, it's because the Lord Jesus knew his father. The Lord Jesus could sing what David wrote in another psalm, right? My heart is glad 
Even when looking in the grave, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to see all or let your Holy One see corruption. I know how this ends for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones and y'all might try to kill me, but I'm getting resurrected. Doesn't need to rhyme, it's all true. Right? There's much safety and there's only safety in resting in the will of the Lord. And that's when you find what peace really is, what sleep really is. This is what Paul told them. He says, oh, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Let your requests be made known to him with supplications and thanksgiving. And the peace of Christ will guard your heart and mind. And we're told it's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's handing over all our cares, knowing that God is completely in control. It's closing our eyes, knowing that our God will never close his. And it's not fearing anything that's frightening because God will deliver his people from every trouble, even death. And so we receive it as a gift because it is, right? Every night our loving father says, trust me. And as we give him all our troubles, he gives to his beloved sleep. And so when we're heavy and burdened, I think there's a lot for us to be instructed by in this psalm. When you're weighed down with groaning saints, take up these graces, pray, be still, obey. Rejoice, rest in the safety of the Lord. And we find what a kindness the Lord has made for us that as we go out and as he sends his people out in a world full of grace, he sends them out full of otherworldly grace. And so though our, our world is full of trouble, our Jesus is full of help. Let's pray. Oh dear Lord, we thank you uh, for what you give us in Jesus. We thank you for your word, which reminds us that our sufferings are common, that our groans are expected, that we join in with the song of all creation, waiting the revealing of the sons of God and the fullness of redemption to be expressed. And as we wait, Lord, help us to wait by faith. Help us to be active in honoring you, trusting you, resting in you. Help us to fan the aroma of the fragrance of the knowledge of God. Help us to be content with knowing you and call others to do the same. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.